praying for this message and asking what God wants to say to us today, one word came out as the theme, um, and it's the theme of disappointment. It's a few days after Christmas, and uh, (laughs) so I'm going to be talking about disappointment, praying for those who are bearing disappointment. And uh, what kind of disappointments am I thinking about? Well, so for example, um, on my Facebook news feed a lot recently, um, I've been seeing engagement announcements. And you have little paired photos and everyone's happy. And you know, if you're getting engaged, it's so exciting. And you put the photos and if you're married and you see, oh, that's sweet. But if you're not married and you want to be married, there's almost nothing more frustrating than seeing another engagement announcement. And one friend of mine said, where's my ring? I think he was being ironic, um, but his point was is that actually, especially the holiday time, if you have this hope and this dream, and I want to be married, and I'm not, that's a disappointment. And you've been praying about it, and God doesn't seem to have done anything, and you're, disappointment. you're disappointed. Or maybe you are married, and you've been praying for your spouse to change, <laughs> maybe for years, and disappointment. Um, or maybe, you know, marriage is going great and you've got kids and you had dreams for them. Disappointment. Um, and, or, you know, maybe it's your grandkids, maybe you've been praying for issues with your parents. Throughout family life, we can recognize, if we put our nose up against the cold glass of reality, there are disappointments. But it's not just family life. Think about careers. Maybe you didn't get into the school you wanted, didn't get the scholarship, didn't get the promotion. Maybe you got the job and it's boring. <laughs> disappointment. Or maybe not just family and career, maybe health. Maybe you've been in the period of depression and you've been praying and it hasn't lifted. Or maybe you've got a particular physical challenge. You or a family member, you've been praying and God hasn't done anything. Disappointment. Or maybe even church itself. Maybe you've come with real expectations to meet God in a powerful new way and you've been praying and it hasn't yet happened. Or maybe you've been looking for deep friendships and a reality of a community where there's openness and love and trust and showing in. Maybe it's a bit of a disappointment. Or maybe you've even got a ministry within the church and you've been praying for impact and multiplication and growth and lives changed and it just feels like you're doing your thing. Disappointment. Now the funny thing is that Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount that our God, our Father, knows what we need. He knows what we need. And yet we carry these disappointments. Why do we need disappointments? I'm going to try and answer that question. But actually spend our time in the book of Ruth, looking at the life of Naomi. And we're going to look at three scenes in her life and see how she coped with the profound disappointment. And actually in these three scenes, we're going to see three steps along a journey to joy. So I'm just going to give you an overview. Each scene, I've got a one-word title. The first scene is called Bitter. We see her express her bitterness to God. The second scene called Barley. She looks around during this time of barley harvest, which is a kind of grain, and she starts to see signs of God's kindness. And then in the third scene, we see her holding this baby, and we see her holding on to hope. So that's roughly where we're going. So... Um, I've been studying Ruth, but I also recommend a book called Shattered Dreams um, by Larry Crabb, which um, really deals with the issue of disappointment and sorrow as a Christian. Very helpful. If you're on your phone now, that's fine because you're looking up on Amazon. That's okay. For a friend, 
for a friend. That's right. Okay. Well, uh, now let me pray for us, and let's pray that God was, would speak. Father, thank you that you know us, and that you know our story, and who we are, and where we are, and what we've seen, and what we've done. But Lord, thank you that we can approach you with hope, knowing that you are a compassionate Father. And we just pray, help us to open up to you. Lord, pray, help us to see signs of your kindness in our lives. And pray, Father, we'd be people characterized by hope. Lord, would you transform us? May we be the different people that Maria and Manny were talking about. Would you do this in us? We invite you, your presence, your spirit, your word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So the first scene, um, which I've called Bitter, I'm just going to read the first five books, uh, five books? Ah. How much time have we got? Um, the first five verses of the book of Ruth, which is on page 222. 222, if you want to find one of these Bibles, it might be in the seat, uh, under the seat in front of you. So, context, so you have the Pentateuch from uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, which takes God's people to the edge of the promised land. And then you read next Joshua, who takes them into the promised land. And then you see them in there, but they're really struggling with these Philistines who are attacking them, only protected by judges. And that's where we are. So the people have got it in the promised land, but they're still really struggling. So verse 1, Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn, or stay, in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was unpronounceable. Sorry. The name of the man was, was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Just kind of pause the story. At this point, we can kind of sympathize with this family. You know, they're struggling. They have a vision of a better life. They're going to take their kids. They're going to make it happen. Maybe they, you know, they can see this new farm, and it's fruitful, and they're together, and there'll be grandkids appearing, and they're sitting on the porch, and, you know, sun's coming up, and vision of a better life, and off they go. But what happens? Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And you can imagine those two boys carrying their father's coffin and feeling the weight of disappointment and grief and loss and uncertainty. So these sons, verse 4, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. Oh, wait, the name of the book's called Ruth. <laughs> How about that? So that and this, yeah, this girl's called Ruth too. Um, and so they lived there about 10 years and both Marlon and and Killian died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So she's there at their graveside, hope buried in a land where they talk with a strange accent. So she's standing there and she's alone. Well, she's not quite alone because she has these two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And I'll skip the bit where Ruth pledges her commitment to Naomi. She's going to follow Naomi. There's just a, fa- a famous little speech. You know, your people should be my people, Ruth says to Naomi, and your God, my God. So Ruth commits to Naomi and they go back to Bethlehem. And I've got a couple of paintings um, of Ruth committing to Naomi. This is by William Blake, late 18th century English. There's Naomi kind of clinging 
Ruth clinging to Naomi, and then in the next one by a modern American painter, um, which I really like, uh, there's Naomi um, with her walking stick, her staff, and there's Ruth kind of protecting her. And we'll just keep that picture up because this is them on their way back to Bethlehem. So skip with me to verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Just pause the story there. I mean, imagine going to a high school reunion. You haven't seen people for 20 years. But you're looking a complete wreck because you've just been traveling. And all the answers you have to their questions are going to be tragic. How do you feel? As they look at you, as they, as they speak, as they gather around. So, I mean, this is probably a spring day because we, we see that it's the time of the barley harvest. And in that time, in that place, they'd plant it in the fall and it would be harvested in the spring. So it could be a beautiful blue sky. There could be birds singing. There could be the sound of scythes in the fields, the sound of people working. It could be a fresh and pleasant day. But Naomi is not fresh, and she is not feeling pleasant. Look at verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi meant pleasant in Hebrew, and Mara meant bitter. She says, call me bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Do you know what it feels like to feel bitter? Do you know what it feels like to feel empty? But the striking thing in all this is that she is angry with God. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She is angry. She is bitter. She is disappointed with God and does not sin. Does the ground open up beneath her? No. Is there a thunderbolt? No. Does the narrator criticize her? No. She is angry with God and does not sin. Does that surprise us? But it shouldn't. Because if you read the Psalms, 150 Psalms, scholars put them in different categories. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, confession, repentance, there's corporate praise, and then there's the lament, the psalm of a lament. A lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. You know what the biggest pile of psalms are? Psalms of lament. God even gives us the words to express our disappointment. Let me read a few uh, lines from Psalm 88. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's the end. That's the end of the psalm. Happy ending? It's a lament. Naomi laments. She opens up. She opens up before God. She is angry with God and she does not sin. Are you brave enough? Am I brave enough to allow ourselves to feel the pain of our disappointment before God? 
Are we brave enough to even use the words God has given us to express our disappointment before God? It is really important that we do because lamenting is actually the first step on the journey to joy. It's Naomi's first step on her journey to joy, lamenting. Because if we don't open up before God, if we just bury that pain, if we hide the disappointment, we carry it around with us, and that pain drives us to whatever offers temporary relief. When you're feeling bitter, what do you run to to make life taste sweet for a moment? Donuts? Ice cream? Porn? Alcohol? Cigarette? Drugs? Whatever we run to define relief doesn't actually lead us on a journey to joy. It tends to lead to addictive behavior, to denial, to not being present with people because we're just carrying that pain and it drives us to whatever offers temporary relief but tends to come with much more consequences. But Naomi sees that path and she chooses to open up before God. But here's the striking thing. Maybe you can imagine praying to God and sharing your lament with him. But she doesn't just lament before God. She laments with God's people. The women are gathering around. Is this Naomi? Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Are we brave enough to lament with God's people? A friend of mine I was chatting to on Skype the other day. And he and his family had been quite hurt by a church leader. Not in the New Frontiers family, but just back in in the UK. And they had to move across the country. And they, you know settled a new church and loved the Sunday services. But he was saying they were really reluctant to join a community group. Why? Well, he admitted because that invites questions. And questions demand answers. And those answers are painful. Really painful. But I'm praying that they will have that courage to lament with God's people. Because that is the first step on the journey to joy. So that's... So the first scene is bitter, and uh, it presents a choice. There's a fork in the road. Do we open up before God and with God's people? Do we lament, or do we hide? Do we bury our pain, and does that just drive us to relief? But what happens next? Secondly, um, the second scene I've called Barley. So we're going to fast forward, and um, they're now in Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth. And chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. What is gleaning? We don't tend to glean in modern America. Um, It was a a law that if if you had a farm in ancient Israel... Um, you would you know, send your harvesters in to collect the grain. But if they were kind of harvesting and they dropped stuff, they weren't allowed to pick it up. And nor were they allowed to kind of go all the corners and all the sides. In other words, there was provision for those who had nothing that they could come and collect what was left over. So in other words, the bottom line wasn't the bottom line in Israelite society. They were also interested in providing for the poor. And I also reckon for the workers, it must be quite a good deal. I dropped it. You know, never mind. It's charity. It's charity. Anyway, so that's what she's doing. So um, Naomi 
has sent Ruth, and Ruth is in the field, verse 3. So she set out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. So Boaz is introduced as this godly guy. And I, mean, I don't need to redo the whole story. But ultimately, he basically ensures that Ruth is safe. Because as I say, this is kind of time of anarchy. And she was a single foreign girl in the field, incredibly vulnerable. But this guy ensures that she is safe. And so we fast forward to the end of the day in which Ruth comes back home. Verse 19. Sorry, verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, 22 liters. Thanks, Wikipedia. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and Ruth also brought her and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied, because Boaz had provided lunch. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So just pause and imagine the scene. So Naomi has been on her own, and uh, maybe she's been gathering firewood, maybe she's got a fire going. It's getting dark outside. Um, it's smoky. She's hungry. She's just got some lunch. And so you, the kind of fire's flickering, and there's a sort of smell of smoke, and she can see Ruth, and she's pleased that Ruth doesn't have tear marks down her face. She has not been assaulted. She's actually been safe that entire day. So she's really pleased to see her. And she sees that Ruth has bought this kind of big bag of, you know, barley. And maybe maybe just kind of put her hand in it and kind of feel the texture of the barley. And she's talking to Ruth. And she asks Ruth this question, you know, um, who took notice of you? And so Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Ruth would have seen Naomi's face brighten up and sort of sit up. And this woman who was bitter now seems to have something about her. Why? Verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What? Naomi is describing the Lord as kind. I thought the Almighty dealt bitterly with you. What's happened? Naomi said, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers, which in the legal context of the day, imagine you had to sell your farm, you had, no, you had nothing, because in those days, your farm was your past, it was your present, it was your future, it was your security, it was your identity, it was your place in the world, and to lose that, lost everything. But then if one of your relatives was able to buy back that farm to you, he was your redeemer, and you had a new start, a brand new start. And so Naomi's sitting there in the darkness, and she sees the fire, and, the, and she sees Ruth's face, and she's got the barley in her hands, and she hears the name of Boaz, and she is looking around and seeing signs of God's kindness. Can you identify in your life the signs of God's kindness? Because when we've faced bitter disappointment, it can become all-consuming. We can become obsessed with it. We can disappear into our kind of black hole, and this is all we think. This defines us. This is the past. This is the present. This is the future. And we can choose just to sort of stay within our disappointment-defined life. But Naomi looks up, and she looks around, and she begins to identify signs of God's kindness. There's Ruth. She's stuck with me. There's the barley we are going to eat. Boaz, maybe that guy is going to give us a fresh start. Her husband is still dead. Her sons are still dead. That tragedy is true. But it's not the whole truth. 
It's not the whole truth about her life, her present, or her future. She sees signs of God's kindness. So again, the choice comes to us. Are we able to pray and talk and say, help me, Lord, see what you are doing in this time, in this place? How is your kindness reaching me? Because it just happened that they arrived at the barley harvest time. There's going to be food. It just happened that Ruth went to Boaz's field. God is in charge of your timings and your placings. But can you see? Can you look around and see the signs of God's kindness? So we're going to fast forward to the third and final point at the end of the story. So Ruth and Boaz, you know, it's a kind of rom-com-ish. They, uh, Tristan turns, they get married, Ruth and Boaz. Beautiful, beautiful story. And, uh, and then they have a son. So chapter 4 at the end, verse 14. So Ruth bears the son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He, the baby, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So again, um, and thank you for flicking through those paintings. Those were various scenes that I forgot to mention. Um, But this is the final scene, and Naomi has this baby. And babies can represent a lot of things, but to her, this baby represented hope. This was a restorer of life. You know, this baby represented the future. Things actually could get better. And as she's holding on to this baby, she is holding on to hope. She is holding on to hope. If the first step in the journey to joy was opening up, lamenting before God and with God's people. And if the second step in the journey to joy is actually being able to look around and identify signs of God's kindness, the third step, possibly the most important, is holding on to hope. As she held that baby, she was holding on to hope. And that baby was hope to her. But actually, the baby represents hope for the readers of Ruth. Why? Well, because the author makes the point They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And to the readers that day, David is just like highlighted yellow, flashing, bold, underlined. Because he was the guy who dealt with their problems. In the time of the judges, in this kind of anarchic time, the Philistines would come and attack and steal all their stuff. And David defeated Goliath, the Philistine, monstrous, gigantic soldier. But more than that, he kind of unites the tribes, he drives out their enemies, he restores the land to peace. David was the one who set them free. And so the readers of Ruth, when they see this baby, they think, well, God can organize things to provide someone to set us free. And we, who read this, also see God at work sending someone to set us free. Because these three names are almost matched in the very first Sentence, the very first line of the New Testament. First book, Matthew's Gospel. First line, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. 
Matthew is making that link, that continuity, because Jesus is the greater David who defeats our greatest enemies. When Jesus died on the cross, he defeats Satan. He takes our sin, all our regrets, our laments and our confessions, all that we've done wrong, he takes them into us into himself so that we can sing those songs and mean them and know they're true, that God never lets us go. And that he welcomes us, that he washes us as white as snow. He defeats that enemy of sin and, our cons- and the consequences of sin. He takes that away so we can be free. We can be free from the power of sin, free from the penalty of sin. We can actually live the full human flourishing life that he has called us to. He has set us free. That's when he died. But when he rose again, he defeated death. Death could not hold him. Death cannot hold us because the spirit that raised him lives within us also. That is our hope. Because just as Naomi, for sure her husband had died and her sons had died, and she would carry that with her, but she wouldn't carry it always. And our disappointments we may carry But we know that the day will come in which God will wipe away every tear. In Revelation 21, John sees this vision. And he says, you know, a voice from the throne at last, the dwelling of God is with men. And he will be with them and they will be his people. He will be their God and there will be no more crying or suffering or death or pain. For the old order has passed away. That is our hope. That is our hope. Just as when my daughter, through her daughter, has a grazed knee and she's crying, I can sit her on my knee and put my arm around her and wipe away tears. God will do that to you. So we started by identifying our disappointments. And if we just hold on to them, if we bury them, if we hide. You know, Naomi could have come back to Bethlehem. How are you doing? I'm fine. Great. You know, better off without them. Denial. Pain. But no, she lamented, she opened up before God. That was the first step. And then she identified signs of God's kindness. She wasn't just buried in her own grief. She was able to look up and identify signs of God's kindness. And then she held on to hope. She held on to hope. And so imagine that perhaps God can use our disappointments to change us. Because just as Naomi said, I went away full and God brought me back empty. This kind of emptying of one's heart, this prizing from our fingers what we were living for, actually creates the kind of space which means God can come in. And that we can have a new life, a new sweeter experience of knowing God, which is better than clinging to whatever other thing we were clinging to. And as we go through disappointments, as we lament, and as we look around for signs of God's kindness... And as we hold on to hope, we can become the kind of community that is just beautiful. I mean, wouldn't you want the kind of community where people are real and authentic and open and they're not hiding and they're not in denial, but they can share their laments with you because they are confident that nevertheless God is kind and that he hears and he gives them permission to do so. And wouldn't you want a community where people actually, even if they're going through hard times, can still worship God because they can still see signs of God's kindness. And wouldn't you want a community where people are so driven by hope, so confident for the future, so looking forward to the day in which they'll see Jesus face by face, face to face, that they can take risks, that they can be generous, that the things that this world tempts us by, they can shrug off. Wouldn't that be a beautiful community? We see signs of this at Jubilee. We see signs of this in our community group. But I'm going to pray that as we learn from Naomi to open up, to look around and to hold on to hope, we could become even more the kind of people and the kind of community God wants us to be.